Good morning, Church at the Red Door. Thank you, Mr. Lenticum. Uh, excited to continue the series on, hey, look, how do we, how do we, in a margin, we are so marginalized, we are so stigmatized. Uh, the crossover between politics and evangelicalism and all the different things that, and so many things confuse, confuse the issue of how do we simply tell people about Jesus and the kingdom. That's what we talked about last week. So as a quick reminder, we looked uh, at this, telling the kingdom, telling again, telling the gospel, which is really what it means to tell the gospel is not we live on a fallen earth and we live on this timeline and eventually God sends us to heaven or hell based upon our maybe our some of our activities and a few of our theological views. No, that is not a compelling way to say it, and it's full of, again, half-truths, uh, as Andy Blackmore so eloquently described. Now, what, we, what it is, is that these two realms are now what? Heaven, pictured here, this green, vibrant God space is has invaded. And what I want to talk to you a little bit about this week is the centerpiece, the overlap. Now, pre-Jesus, there was a place of overlap, and it was called first the tabernacle, and then eventually under King Solomon, as we'll see this morning, the temple and some very specific things God was saying about the temple. That's why all these prescriptions for you know, Jewish men and women uh, was to do this, you, the nation of Israel. You had to go down during these certain feasts. You had the very specific uh, qualifications to be enter this clean spot and be forgiven of sins. And it was the blood of bulls and goats, as Paul describes in Hebrews, that was in some way, and I know it sounds strange to modern ears, but the spilling of life cleaned up, gave a, gave a clean spot of sorts that absorbed the sin for a period of time. But then as soon as people left, left Jerusalem, the temple, the actual physical temple, this part of the men, they'd go back and they'd get dirty again. So they'd have to come back. And then they'd go back and they'd get dirtied up again. And they'd have to come back. And it was a perpetual statute until... Jesus comes along and says, wait a minute, there is extraordinary good news that the kingdom is now invaded and it's, it's me, it's the story of me and your Messiah is here, God is here in human flesh, which Jesus was very clear about, and this, this clean spot is me and now I'm not just going to stay here in Jerusalem in fact, what we saw last week, and each clean spot that's made, I'm going to send them back after myself. Jesus went out into the earth with the sinners and everything, and uh, he spent time with them, and heart was changed, and heart was changed, and heart was changed. And after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and these clean spots were breaking out all over the place. And eventually, and again, if I was going to talk about locally, that was here, but eventually it was to start, as we saw last week, Jesus, the commands, start in Jerusalem, then Judea, and then Samaria, but then eventually I want these clean spots to go out all over the place. And that is the kingdom not only coming in Christ, but then expanding, and eventually we're looking for this. Now, will this happen in our lifetime? Will this happen at some point? The kingdom of heaven will overtake. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just a future. Yeah, it won't completely crossover, that's called post-millennialism, it won't completely, they're like a new age, but at some point Jesus will come back and then finally consummate it completely in his second coming and it'll all be set right and we will live with him 
forever. And then next week we'll talk about what about the people that reject it all the way along, even as it grows. What about the people that reject it? And we'll talk a little bit about hell. So this morning, I want to talk to you about Jesus as the temple. But before we do, let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 8. And this is Saul. This is a dedication of the temple uh, after they had expended. Remember, David couldn't build it because if he was a man of war, had blood on his hands. So the task went to his son Solomon. Solomon then built this king, this amazing temple. And I mean, today, the, the, I don't know what the number was. I've heard different numbers, but it would be, you know, it'd be like building a, a new a stadium like Jerry Jones Stadium in Dallas or something, a billion plus dollars, even more, solid gold everywhere, amazing, amazing structure and the temple courts and all the things that surrounded the actual temple, amazing what was built. And then obviously during the time when Jesus came, uh, uh, King Herod the Great had even expanded on that and it was, it was amazing. But here we have the temple and this was the very first and he prays a benediction, he, he prays over this temple, and here's how it goes. First Kings chapter 8, verse 1. There's some pretty cool things we're going to be able to pick up that I believe point towards the ultimate temple. Okay, so let's start reading in verse 1. It says, Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. And when all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark. They brought the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and the Levites carried them up and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle they couldn't even be recorded or counted. So get the Get to here. So the temple's complete, but now they need the presence of God in the temple. So if you'll remember back a year ago, I think it was in May, it might have even been May 15th, I'm not sure. I did a message on the carrying of the ark. Imagine it, carrying it up, and God had been giving us pictures and types of that for a long time. Uh, they carried it on poles and on the wood of his back as he carried up Isaac, and then the ark of the covenant came in uh, during, during these times. And it was amazing as they, as they marched up to Mount Moriah carrying the ark. And, and I gave you pictures of that. I think that was Jesus and the cross and all that prefiguring that was there, which was overwhelming. Now they're going to take the ark again. They're going to bring it into the temple. And here's what happens. Here's what happens. So verse 6, the priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Remember this amazing thing that's been built. The most holy place and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that the ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary. And I, I personally believe these poles were signifying the cross, the, the, the actual physical cross that, uh, that Jesus would die on uh, years later. And I'm going to show you why this is. But not from outside the holy place, and they still are there today. There was nothing in the ark except for the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with Israelites and they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, catch this, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Okay, so here we have, get this, the presence of God, the very presence of the divine God 
came in and in a form of a cloud filled the inner sanctuary here. And the priests couldn't even stay in it. They had to, they had to depart because of the presence of the Lord was so strong. And he said, well, what relevance is that? Well, it's going to have a great relevance because now we're going to shift. And again, this all is going to... Now you say, well, would you really get into this kind of detail when you're talking to people about the gospel? No, but if you understand this as a backdrop and it so firmly is entrenched in your mind, you'll be able to articulate the gospel in a much more powerful and profound way as the Holy Spirit will lead you. This is, in fact, going to give us background information on how this happens. How does this happen? How does this happen? How does this middle space turn from the temple to Jesus? This is going to get fun. Are you ready? Hold on to your seats. Get ready to roll. This is going to be good. And I think it's going to help you understand some of the things that Jesus has talked about in the overall gospel. Uh, his gospel is the story of his life and what he taught and what he did. And I think it's going to give you some great insight. So let's start. So God's, let's, let's finish the story here. So here's God talking about the temple in Solomon's time. So 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 29, he said, God's eyes are going to be specifically on the temple. Okay. Verse 29 says that your eyes may be open. He's talking about Israel. He said, if you guys are in diaspora, if you've been scattered all over the face of the earth, yet that your eyes will be open toward this house night and day. Now think about this. Even if you're living way off across the Mediterranean, here's Solomon praying that their eyes would be toward this house. Jews all over the world still, they pray toward Jerusalem and not just Jerusalem but more specifically where the temple was and where many anticipate, some Orthodox Jews believe, a temple will be rebuilt one day. And they're in the process of trying to get that done. And it's, it's just bizarre that they can't get it done. They own all, they, they have Israel and they'd rebuild the temple. But if you know anything about the Temple Mount, they just aren't able to do it because of Palestinian control, etc. It's a long political story I don't want to get into. But here's Solomon, a thousand years before the time of Jesus, again, talking about this temple that the Lord, that Israel would have its eyes toward that house day and night. That's a pretty intimate relationship with a building. Really? Day and night. Our eyes should be toward the temple. Toward the temple. Why? Because the presence of God is there. It said, toward the place of which you have said, my name shall be there to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. So here's what Solomon's praying. If I don't care where you are. You don't have to be in Jerusalem. You don't have to be just in the temple courts. Wherever you are, over the face, scattered over the face of the earth, if you will pray toward this temple, if you will look towards this temple, then I'll hear your voice. That's what his prayer is. Why? A building? Well, God's presence is there. Okay, okay, we can kind of get that. Well, let's go on. Well, if Israel... Uh, repents in the temple, then sins are going to be forgiven. Now, well, we know a little bit about that. And that's what he says here in verse 33 and 34 of the same chapter 8. When your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, in the vicinity of this temple, I can't go into the Holy of Holies. But if they will confess in the vicinity here of this temple, then what? He's praying then here in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land 
which you gave to your fathers. Bring them back into your presence. So here Solomon again is praying, okay, here's the temple. Pray towards it. Look towards it. Keep your eyes perpetually day and night towards this temple. And then even if you ask forgiveness, Solomon's praying that you'll hear their cries of confession and forgive them from this temple, just in the vicinity of the temple. Pray towards this temple. Are you starting to get the picture here? Next, if Israel spreads its hands later on in the chapter, spreads its hands out, okay, toward this house, all this blessing will come. Spread the hands out. It's like worship. Now you're talking about almost a spreading the hands out as a picture of worship. Okay, so pray towards, keep your eyes on, confess your sins in the vicinity of, worship. And then victory over Satan. Now listen to uh, then verse 44 of chapter 8. When your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the house, that's this temple, which I have built for your name, what happens? Well, then you'll have incredible victory. You'll have incredible victory. So not only do you get, <laughs> are you starting to get this, folks? Worship, keep your eyes on, confess your sins to this temple, okay? In the vicinity. And then that's because that's where God's presence is. Even victory over Satan and your enemies. Pray towards his house. And then Jesus comes along, announcing and proclaiming the gospel, which is what? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right near us. It's invading. This dimension is invading. And now all the things that King Solomon said about this, again, about this center part right here, this overlap, which used to be temple. Now guess what? Jesus is going to begin to proclaim that he is, in fact, the temple. Now, don't miss this. Jesus, not the temple in Jerusalem. There is no temple, right? If you wanted to, if you, if you wanted to, you can come up with some man-made concoction about, and again, you say, well, don't be so harsh on our, on our Jewish friends. I, I don't want to be. I just want them to understand that Jesus is the Messiah who cleansed them from their sins, creates the spot, creates the clean spot in our heart, gives us a new heart. It's not bread being thrown on the water, uh, some man-made construction because there's no temple anymore. I know there's no temple anymore, not the physical temple, but guess what? There is the temple, and here's the story of Jesus. Now listen to this, John chapter 1, verse 14. This is a Jew, John writing one of his disciples, writing about Jesus as temple. This is how he starts. John chapter 1, verse 14. First of all, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, And then, catch this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, skenoo in the Greek, which means to encamp, to tabernacle with, to construct a tabernacle, or a... a are you with me? He dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You can think of it as that. This, this smoke that filled was a picture of the presence of God. And now John's making this extraordinary claim 
that Jesus is the temple, no longer necessitating a physical structure. Jesus is the temple, and he is filled not with smoke, but he's filled with the very Spirit of God, full of grace and truth, and he tabernacled among us. It cannot be more clear. Now listen to some of Jesus' commentary on this. We'll go to Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 through 6. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions? See, they were complaining because the disciples were outside the construct of, of their uh, man-made things uh, and their rules and their regulations, and they were upset about it, and they were addressing Jesus on it. And then Jesus says how he entered the house of God, talk about David, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple, catch this, break the Sabbath and are innocent, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. What is he talking about? He's defending his disciples because why? Because they're, they're eating, but they're nowhere near the temple. They're out somewhere, and the, and the, they're nowhere near in the vicinity of the temple, and, and they're eating, and, and they say, why are they doing this on the Sabbath? And he says, have you not read? And he goes back to the time of David, that when they were there, they became hungry, and they ate, and it was okay with God to eat. God didn't strike them down. Why? Because they were priests, and they were in the vicinity of the temple. What is Jesus saying? What is the subtext here, friends? My disciples are in the vicinity of the temple. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm the temple. You, you, you guys are, you guys say, remember what they did in the temple? It was okay then. Well, it's okay what they're doing as well. Why? Because they are in the vicinity of me. I am the temple. Something greater than the temple is here. This is the new temple. This is a mobile temple, as I said last week, as John Dixon calls it. And this is a replacement temple temple. I'm going to replace the old temple. God's not, and not only that, I'm going to replace all the sacrificial system. I'm going to replace it all. Because remember, this is extraordinary news. You're not going to have to, you're not going to have to go out. So what was he doing? He was saying, it's me. I'm the temple. Well, what happened in the temple? As we saw, worship, Jesus accepts worship, confession of sins. Why do you confess your sins? We, we talk, we pray, we'll pray towards this house. Why do we pray? Why does the Bible tell us to pray in Jesus' name? Because he's the new temple. Let's go on. John chapter two, verse 13. Another interesting interaction. First Passover. Now Jesus would cleanse the temple twice. Turn over the money changers go in and radically early in his ministry and then uh, right before he went to the cross, that, 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 week, that week that we still celebrate. So let's talk about the first Passover cleansing of the temple. Verse 13, John 2. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem where the temple was and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables, and he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple, 
with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away, stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as authority for doing all these things? And Jesus said, destroy this temple, catch this, and in three days, I will raise it up. And of course they said, well, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? He said, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Who's Jesus think he is? He's coming into the place of God's dwelling and he's causing a ruckus. He's overturning things. He's saying, you're doing a business. He's taking control of this, what he's doing. He's, he's making an indictment on the current temple. The current temple itself is bankrupt. It's been, in, in fact, it's going to be destroyed very soon. But I'm the replacement to this temple. I have authority over this temple. It's my father's plan always was. When Solomon was praying about this temple and that people all over the world would be worshiping and confessing towards the temple, wasn't talking about that building. We couldn't do it, folks, if we wanted to. It doesn't exist. But there's the new temple, and it's Jesus. And so when we, when we go back to this, Jesus is the replacement here. Pre-Jesus, this little clean spot through the blood of goats and lambs in the middle here, right? This part right here where they overlap. That was the blood of goods, bulls and goats. We don't need it anymore. The final sacrifice has been made. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the things that were in the temple. He's the high priest that went in. He's the lamb. Behold, the lamb of God, as John the Baptist said when he came to be baptized. It's his blood, not the blood of goats and bulls. He's not, he's everything. He's the temple. He's the bread that's come down out of heaven, the bread that they were eating. The priests would uh, bake every day in the, in, the, in the inner sanctum. Unbelievable picture. Clearly, this is the good news. The good news is that Jesus is now the clean spot. How do we relate that to a culture? Well, you believe this, and if you believe this right thing and try to kind of behave, then one day you'll go to heaven. And, and we make jokes about it. Look, I grew up at the country club. I mean, I just, as my background, golf, as many of you know, uh, jokes constantly about heaven and the, you know, the golf gods and all this kind of thing. Well, we just have this very warped view, very warped view. Don't try to tell a compelling story with a bunch of half-truths about eternal destination. The good news is that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God, brought these two together, and is creating clean spots for anybody who would believe. Cleansing you. Some of you are out there today and you, you know, your conscience is killing you. Well, there's a place for confession, not to a temple that no longer exists, to Jesus himself. Some of you want to worship something greater than yourself. Worshiping yourself has gotten you nowhere. There is one that can be worshiped to your benefit and joy. And he has no ego. 
He is the creator. He is well situated to receive worship because he's the creator. His name is Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verse 49, it says those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? How is Jesus forgiving sins? Because he's the temple. That's the only place sins can be forgiven. He was the temple. If you get in the vicinity of Jesus, he had the authority as the temple and the lamb and, the, and God and the Messiah. He had full authority to for, forgive sins. Look, they, they were thinking always physical structure, as we read in the last passage. I'm going to tear this down and I'll raise it. He clearly is talking about his body being the temple. And his disciples finally understood that after they had seen him raised from the dead. And then lastly, Matthew 24, catch this, verse 1 and 2. Talking about the signs of Jesus coming back, verse 1 says, And Jesus came out of the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, he said to them, do you not see all of these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. He looked at that physical structure and he said, and they were always aghast. So you know, you can imagine, these are just lay guys. I mean, tax collectors and fishermen. They, you know, they didn't live in Jerusalem. They, many of them, as we know, most of his, his disciples came from the northern parts, you know, Galilee. And, and they would come, and I can imagine they're just overwhelmed at these. He said, don't be too impressed with the structure. Don't you be too impressed with any religious construct that ostensibly, I don't care what the religion is, that has gotten, there's God has manifest himself in one place. It is the temple of Jesus. That's Jesus' declaration. This is all going to be torn down, but... I house God. I am the new replacement temple. And then finally, we get this concluding picture in Revelation 21. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. John sees into the heavenly realm. This is going to be the eternal state. This is going to be finally when, yes, heaven, the elements will uh, you know, burn, uh, but it's going to be new heavens and new earth. But finally, these two, God's space and human space, will completely overlap again, and we'll be back to a Garden of Eden scenario. You say, well, that's too good to be true. It is. It's extraordinary. That's why it's so good, such good news. So these two things, finally, in the eternal state, will be completely overlap. There will be no more pain, suffering, death, tears, none of that. These two things are coming. Now, Jesus is going to have to, it's never going to get, in my, the way I read scripture, it's never going to get this way. Completely, it'll get. But we are called to take those clean spots, see new hearts transformed by the good message and the telling of the story. And as we do, what's going to happen? Well, eventually, it's going to look like this: new heavens and a new earth. They'll come together again, and it'll all be God's space. And those who've rejected it, as we'll talk about next week, will suffer outside the gates. They they won't do this. And I'm like, I'm going to go into great detail about that next week. So Revelation 21, verse 22, I saw no temple. He's talking about the heavenly picture. John looks up, he says, I see no temple in it. He said, I don't see a physical structure. You, you know, I see pictures all the time of heaven. It's got this big temple and this and that and Jesus in it. And he says, I don't see a temple. He said, for the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are 
its temple. Look, I don't know how it could be more clear. Jesus was saying, I am replacing the old temple. It's over. Paul, even John, looks into the future through this revelation and says, there's no temple there. But I see Jesus. I see the lamb on the throne. I mean, it's a beautiful picture that he gets. So uh, what does all this mean in summary before we get into next week? And, and again, let me just tell you, hell is a part of telling of the gospel. But we need to be more clear in what we're saying when we talk about sending people to hell, what hell is, some kind of torture chamber, etc. We'll talk more about that next week. But in summary, now catch this, Jesus is the fulfillment, as we said, of everything. He's a replacement temple, not only the temple, but he's replacing the lamb and the high priest and the, it's his blood and the bread and all, all, that, all that's being replaced in Christ. Could be, couldn't be more clear. So how do we know that he proved, he had to prove this? And this is part of telling the gospel. Look, Jesus proved that these two realms had coincided by these few things. And I have alluded to them before, but more specifically, well, his teaching, he just taught with authority. This it came with power. And this authority is kind of like people were being knocked back. They couldn't believe the words that were coming out of his mouth. He said, they're not teaching like our religious teachers. He's teaching with authority, not just because he did miracles, just the words themselves were so intoxicating that it blew people away. Matthew 7, verse 28 and 29 said, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not like their scribes. They just couldn't believe. So the teaching, but also the doing, as we saw in Acts 1, it's both make a claim towards who he is. So he's, so his authority as king also comes through his teaching. But also his miracles were clearly a picture of his creative ability. Only God can create something. I mean, he turned the water into wine. He multiplied the fish. He multiplied the loaves. He, he did some extraordinarily, uh, some healing miracles that were creative in their nature and give a picture as that this is a creator too. This is the creator. This is not just a guy with some magic, this is not a magic show. This guy has authority, divine authority, doing things only God can do. Also, as we've talked about at various points, walking across the water, trampling the waves, defying the laws of physics. Only God can do that. We have no other example in human history of the defiance of natural law and physics outside of Jesus, and then through him, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then his command over the demonic realm is, is big too. Again, giving picture to his kingly authority. Again, we're always looking for two things. The good news is that Jesus is God and Jesus is the king. Okay, that's the good news. And because of that authority and that divine nature, the kingdom is now come. That's what we're telling people. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 through 34. Catch this. Jesus, again, casting out the demons. When he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him and they were coming out of the tombs and they were extremely violent so that no one could pass by. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each, with each other, son of God? Now the demonic realm knows exactly who Jesus is. It says, catch this, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from him and the demons began to treat him saying, if you're going to cast us out, 
sent us unto that herd of swine. And he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the swine and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, perished in the waves and in the water, into the waters. Now we, we, there's a place that they think probably if you've ever been with me to Israel, kind of almost right there. It's on the other side of where Capernaum is and Tiberias and other places. It's on the other side of the Galilee. And there's a kind of a steep area there. They think that's probably where this herd of the swine, uh, the swine were. It says, then the herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus and they saw him and they implored him to leave. They were terrified. Who is this guy? He's got control over the demonic realm. Kingly authority. Is this the Messiah? Is this the king? Is this the long-awaited Messiah? Not just of Israel, but as the prophets had seen, the king of the cosmos? Could it be? Of course, his resurrection, only God can be raised, right? And Jesus said he would raise it up. Jesus said, I will raise it up, speaking of his own temple. He didn't say some power. He said, I will raise it up. I have the authority to raise it up. And then finally, this overwhelming fulfillment of the nations. I mean, this is, is not just king of Israel, folks. Jesus proved that he's king of all. Part of us, we're halfway around the globe, are proof that Jesus was the promised seed of Abraham that would be a light to the nations. Isaiah's prophecy that he'd be a light to the nations. That through him, the promise to Abraham, the Holy Spirit would come. All these things have come true. Through him, the temple would be a house of prayer, again, for, as we read, all people. See, the temple that was in Jerusalem was never a house of prayer for all people. Jesus is the house of prayer for all people. We worship him. Our hands are raised. We confess our sins to him. We, we pray towards him. We keep our eyes on him day and night. Why? Because we are yoked with him. We are on a journey with him. We have become followers of Jesus. Now that's extraordinary news. And finally, and lastly, Jesus is the mobile temple that's gone all over the world, reaching every nation and every tongue. And strangely then, 1 Peter 2 says, now we, the church, are the temple, living stones being built into a temple. And so his work as temple is now passed his disciples, which are being passed to others. And our task is through the proclaiming of a compelling gospel narrative that we see clean spots emerging all over. What do we want for the Coachella Valley? What do we want for all the people that come in contact with Church of the Red Door. Why are we Church of the Red Door? It's clean spots, right? It's Jesus' blood, it's clean spots, new hearts, new spirits. That's our task. So I hope this has been helpful. And again, next week, we're gonna talk a little bit more about hell. And I'm gonna give you some talking points, some just general talking points. I'm not gonna give you a script. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will lead you into what you need to say. But if you have all this, again, engraved on your heart, the story of the entirety of Jesus, what he did and what he taught to prove that the kingdom of God had invaded human space, evil, fallen human space. God's space is invaded. If you can tell that story, you're going to be effective. People that you know and love may spend eternity with Jesus because of your compelling ability to tell the story. Now, obviously God's in control and he's sovereign, but we've clearly been told to be able to articulate, you know, Paul tell Timothy, 
be able to do this, be able to tell a compelling story, be able to give a reason for why this faith is in you. And I think this is going to be helpful. So next week, a few talking points, and we're going to dive into this issue of hell, eternal separation from the creator of the universe. What happens for people who reject it and reject it and reject it and reject it and never come to the clean spot? Jesus himself. We'll talk about that next week.